excited to have this chance. Uh, Brother David uh, is going to have to be doing some traveling over the next couple of weeks, and so he asked me if I would fill in, and I would finish out the quarter for him, and uh, I'm excited to have that chance to study together with you. Uh, I don't want to recap everything from 2 Corinthians, but we are entering into uh, a kind of a different section. So these last couple of chapters, chapters 10 through 13, are going to take on a very different tone from what we've been studying. Uh, if you think about maybe just our, our, our recent history in 2 Corinthians, we, we've had what, what I would probably describe as a little bit more of an upbeat um, attitude. You think about chapters 4 and 5 that are really encouraging the brethren there. You know, chapter 4 at the end that talks about that, that light momentary affliction, being able to push past some of those things and pressing on for that ultimate goal uh, of being in heaven for all of eternity. Uh, in chapter 7, that's the one where he is thanking them and he's giving, giving praise for their repentance. Uh, he had a lot of things that he had to write to them about in 1 Corinthians, a lot of issues they were dealing with. And it seems that the majority of them have come to repentance, and he's praising them for that. I even chapters 8 and 9, he is encouraging, but, but he's also, uh, I think, rather upbeat. He's reminding them about this commitment that they made to generosity. And he's saying, listen, you guys are really, really good at this. Follow through on it. But we're going to see a little bit of a shift in tone as we come to chapter 10. There is what seems to be this pocket of individuals. And it doesn't appear to be the majority. But at least the impression that I get is that this is kind of a, a rather loud minority that has been pushing back against Paul. Um, and and we've, we've seen this. If you go all the way back to, to 1 Corinthians. Uh, when, you were in first, when we were in 1 Corinthians, pride was a big issue. There were a lot of individuals that were kind of causing this, this, this factious nature uh, and trying to divide the church. And it seems that they are not completely rid of that. What I want us to keep in mind, though, as we're reading throughout chapters 10 and 11, is what is the motivation for now, this change in tone, for confronting these individuals head on? It is not out of pride. Paul is not writing these chapters saying, okay, listen, I really got to defend myself. I'm tired of these people out there that are just putting me down. I, I think we can find the motivation for Paul's writing to them in chapter 11 in the first couple of verses there. So I actually want to read those before we get into chapter 10. Chapter 11, verse 3, he says, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. I think that, those two verses right there, that is the motivation for Paul taking this different tone, taking this different approach with them. He does not want these individuals that he's going to call false apostles to come in and lead them away from Christ. So keep that in mind as we read some of these things today. This is not about Paul, you know, kind of defending his own pride and defending his own character, although he is going to do that. He is defending himself and his apostleship because of what he taught them, because he taught them the truth, and they need to hold to that truth. And if these new figures come in and assert themselves as the authority, Paul is worried that they are then going to pull them away from the truth. And so that's what this is about. This is about defending the truth, not necessarily Paul defending himself out of some kind of selfish pride. 
I think it's pretty clear that he has dealt with these individuals before, that this has been an ongoing issue uh, specific to the Corinthian church. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1, it says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And my defense to those who examine me is this. And then he elaborates from there. But just from the tone of his writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it seems that this is not a new issue. There have been those from the very beginning that have doubted Paul, that have tried to cast dispersions upon Paul, that have maybe tried to say that he is not, he is not the apostle that he claims to be. He's not the authority figure that he claims to be. And so he has to defend himself in 1 Corinthians. And now we're going to see a much more in-depth defense of who he is. He, he's hinted at this a little bit before. Um, so if you are in 2 Corinthians and you go back to chapter 2, uh, I love the way that he phrases this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And in verse 17, he says, For we are not as so many peddling the word of God. Uh, that, that's, that's the New King James wording there. Um, some other versions may say adulterating for gain, which is a, which is a great description. But I, I don't know about you, but when I think about a peddler, I don't necessarily get a, a, a great, maybe a, I don't get a positive image. I, I get somebody that is trying to pass off something that is a knockoff or that is cheap, that is an imitation of the real. You know, I think about, uh, you know, Chinatown or Canal Street, some of these places where you can buy like a $5 Rolex. That, that's what I think of as a peddler. You know, someone who has something that is not authentic, that is a knockoff, that is cheap, but they're trying to pass that along to make money. And that's what Paul is saying earlier in the book. He said, listen, that's not us. We're not peddlers. We're not trying to pass you off something that is cheap or of no value just so we can make gain. But it does seem like that is what is happening. Um, maybe just a little bit of a bigger context. And we don't know this for sure, but I think it makes sense to assume that this is maybe some of what is influencing the church there in Corinth. If you think about this time period, uh, we're, we're dealing with the first century. If you were to back up, about 400 years or so, that's when we have what a lot of people refer to as, as classical Greece. So some of those famous Athenian philosophers like Plato and Socrates, uh, they were living in that 400 BC, give or take, time period. And that was really this emergence of this classical Greek thinking period, where you had these philosophers that were coming up with all their different ideas. But you fast forward this 400 to 500 years, not much has changed. In fact, it made me think about uh, Paul when he was in Athens in Acts chapter 17. And do you remember the way it describes those individuals there at the Areopagus, how they like to pass their time? It said, essentially, they like to pass their time by just talking and hearing about some new thing. Very shallow. They didn't really want to dig in and find out the truth about something. They just like to stand around and, and talk and hear something new and talk and debate. Uh, they're definitely not cast in a very positive light. So there's still this, this, this influence. In fact, if you were to go back through your history books, this period is called the Second Sophistic Movement. So the first Sophistic Movement would have been around the time of Socrates. Socrates is probably uh, what some people refer to as the father of sophistry. Uh, a sophist was essentially an orator, uh, somebody who would come up with some brand new way of thinking and then teach it to others. 
Now, while Socrates did not charge for uh, his, his thinking, what you did have was this long line of people that followed him. And this is a hallmark of the second sophistic movement that was in the first century of these orators and rhetoricians that would charge for their services. So they would have patrons that would provide them with money, and then they would try to gather learners or disciples underneath them, and they would essentially just make money off of what they said. And I think it's, it's understandable when you look at what we're seeing here in the Corinthian church to see that this could have most definitely been a big influence. Uh, Corinth what was, a, was a, leading, a leading Greek city, somewhat, uh, somewhat very similar to Athens, so there would have been this, this big influence for these individuals. But there are going to be these people, and whether, whether you trace it back to the second sophistic movement or not, there are always, always, always people that are going to prize style over substance. And so e- even if you go back to 1 Corinthians, when you think about Paul's first writing this to them, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, he says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? There are always going to be individuals that are going to prize the wisdom of this world over the wisdom of God. And in my mind, that is what Paul is doing here, is he is calling out, directly confronting individuals that have claimed that Paul is not an apostle and maybe have even gone beyond that to hold themselves up so that they can possibly take pieces of this congregation away and lead them astray. And Paul now is going to have to confront them directly. Uh, and I think that hopefully that gives you a little bit of, of a background and a context for what we're going to be dealing with in these, these latter chapters, chapters 10 through 13. Uh, we've got two chapters to cover today, um, so I'm going to go ahead and apologize in advance. I doubt that we're going to be able to get to the questions. I'm sorry about that, but uh, I want to go ahead and, and make as much headway as we can through the text, doing two chapters because we've got the gospel meeting next week. So we'll do chapters 10 and 11 today, and then hopefully have a week to cover chapter 12 and a week to cover chapter 13. So let's dive into chapter 10. Uh, If you have questions, if you have comments, we've got the microphone that we can get to you, so please don't be shy. Uh, Throw a hand up, say something. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts, because there's a lot of stuff here, and I know that we're not going to be able to dig into everything. So if I pass over something that you want to call out, please, you would be doing doing us all a service by mentioning it. Let's look at the first couple of verses of chapter 10. And what I want you to note here is the contrast. How Paul immediately distinguishes himself from these individuals that have maybe perhaps puffed themselves up with pride, going after monetary gain. And and look at how he describes himself. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Immediately setting the tone. Immediately setting the tone and saying, listen, I don't want to be bold. I'm humble. I'm meek. You know me. But he's saying, I'm not afraid to be bold when I need to. I don't want to come to you in this manner. And and he's used words like this before. Remember, he has waited to come to Corinth. He has waited for this word from Titus because he didn't want to go to Corinth and just, you know, like he said, I don't want to come there and just all of a sudden start slapping heads. He's like, I want to come to you in joy. I want to come to you the way we talked about in chapter 7, 
thanking you for your repentance, giving praise and glory for your repentance. He says, but I'm going to have to confront sin. And I'm going to have to confront those that are disobedient. He says, you know, these people that are talking against me, they may pride themselves on being great orators. They may pride themselves on having a great appearance. They may pride themselves on, on their rhetoric. But Paul is going to rest confidently in the knowledge of God and in the obedience of Christ. And he says, what you look at there in verse 3 and 4, he said, we're not fighting according to the flesh. Uh, that's, that's foolish. It's foolish to fight according to the flesh. When you fight in the physical world, there is always going to be somebody that is bigger and stronger than you. No matter how big you are, no matter how strong you are, guess what? Somebody is going to come along that's bigger and stronger. When you, when you fight according to man's wisdom, there's always going to be somebody who's smarter. There's always going to be somebody who's going to come along with a better resume, more letters behind their name. He says, that's not what we want to get into. That's not how we fight. Don't, don't think that way. Get away from the style and think more about the substance. Because the substance, the truth, that's where the power is. Look what he says there in verse 5. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That's where the power is. The power is not in some fancy argument. Have you ever heard somebody that's just, that's just talked and you think, man, that person is just, wow, what a good speaker. And you realize as a couple minutes goes by, you're like, I don't, I don't know what they're really even saying. You know, they, they talked a lot about something, but they're not really even getting to a point. They're just talking. I think that's what you're seeing here. Paul saying, listen, these people might have uh, these, these great speaking skills, but where's the substance? The substance is where the power is. Paul goes on in this next section. And he basically says, I have nothing to apologize for. You know, there have been those that may have accused him. And we're going to get into chapter 11 uh, to a little bit more uh, of specifics about what they may have been accusing Paul of. Paul's saying, listen, I'm not going to apologize to you for exercising the authority that God gave to me. Because Paul is telling them, I did not use this authority to take advantage of you. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. I used the authority that God gave me to build you up. You know, Paul was the one that came there and was with the church from the very beginning. That's what he talked about it in 1 Corinthians. So he was there from the very beginning. So he said, I didn't use this authority that was given to me by God to better myself or for personal gain. I used it for you. So I don't have anything to apologize for. And, and he's almost calling on them. That's at least the idea that I get. He says, listen, just, just take a step back. Look at them and look at me and, and judge for yourself. But don't judge based on these outward appearances. That's what verse 7 says. You look at things according to the outward appearance. Get that out of here. We don't, we're not going to look at the outward appearance. Go back to the substance. He says, verse 8, For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for your edification and for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed. He said, listen, I'm, I'm not going to duck the question. Yes, I have authority. God has given me authority. You know, he, he's... He's not, he's not claiming that he's not an apostle. He's not claiming that the things that he said before are not true. He said, no, they're absolutely true. I'm an apostle. I'm a messenger. God has given me this authority, but I use it for you, to edify you, to build you up. He said, I've got nothing to be ashamed of. I've done nothing improper. Everything I've done has been for you. 
Now he kind of hits on what, what may have been a charge that some of these people have, have brought against him. You know, it seems like if you go all the way back to the beginning of 2 Corinthians, these individuals have used Paul's absence to try to maybe insert something. Hey, listen, you know, Paul hasn't, Paul hasn't been around for a while. He may, he may really not love you. Hey, maybe he was just trying to exploit you. Hey, maybe he's really not who he said he was. Paul has been dealing with that since the very, very beginning of this letter as he explained to them why he wanted to come to them and how he hasn't been able to yet. But one of these charges is that, you know, you go back to 1 Corinthians, it's pretty harsh. I mean, it's just chapter after chapter of wrong, 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 wrong. You've got a lot of work to do. There have been, been some pretty bold things he has said in this letter. But what he's saying here is answering that. He says uh, he's answering that, that charge that he has been humble and meek when he's with them and bold in his letters by saying, listen, there is consistency. Verse 11, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be in deed when we are present. There, there is maybe nothing more frustrating than, than hypocrisy. I, 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 don't know if there's, I don't know if there's anything that drives people crazier than a double standard. I think we probably, we've seen that over this past year with all the different uh, you know, lockdown measures that vary state to state. We've seen some states that have been more relaxed, and then you've seen some states that have been what we would consider extreme. And what frustrates the people that are under some of these more extreme lockdown measures is when you have those in authority that are telling them what to do, but then those people don't abide by those laws. So maybe you have a political leader that says, hey, listen, can't, can't have, you can't have these restaurants open, but then they go and eat at the restaurant. Or you have a political leader that says, hey, listen, can't get together for Thanksgiving, but then they go and get together for Thanksgiving. And, and it's not just with COVID. I think COVID has, has, has maybe highlighted some of these things because we've seen so many new rules and regulations that are changing so rapidly. But in any part of our lives, hypocrisy and a double standard is the first thing that people are going to latch on to. Because if you say one thing over here, but then you don't do it, you're not consistent. You're not holding to that standard of truth. And people want to know, well, why is this a rule for me, but not for you? And what Paul is saying here is, listen, there's no hypocrisy with us. I'm not writing you these bold letters and expecting you to hold to a different standard. He said, I want you to hold to the standard that, that I first communicated to you. We're holding to the standard of truth. Go all the way back to that first section. We're talking about the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. He said, so listen, the things that I'm telling you in these letters, it's the exact same thing I would tell you in person. It's the things that I have told you in person before. And when I come again to you, I'll say the same thing again. He has, he has, he has nothing to be ashamed of or nothing to, to apologize for. And, and that's, that's a lesson for us. You know, I, we often uh, harp on the dangers of social media. And, and I think it's because th this, this world that we live in, social media has so many wonderful advantages. It, it has democratized the sharing of thoughts, which is, which is of course, just a two-edged sword. Anybody can share their thoughts. If you want to know what Joe from Portland, Oregon thinks, you can find it out. You've got a Twitter page or a Facebook or anything. You can know what somebody halfway across the world thinks about any given topic. But it has also drastically changed the way in which we communicate because we often don't have to communicate face-to-face. -face. And we all know there are people that would say things 
from a keyboard. You know, there's a little term for it, Urban Dictionary, a keyboard warrior. So you have these people that will come out and they'll, they'll type something and they'll put it out there on their social media. They'll put it out there on a blog post. They would never say that in person. They would never say that to your face or they would never say that to a group of people. Because it's easy. It's a lot easier, isn't it, to just type something and send it out into the digital world. Not have to face the personal backlash. Or maybe not have to look in somebody else's eye and tell them, hey, I don't think that's right. I look at the example that's given us, and this is just one application of this, but you think about Matthew chapter 18, how we are to deal with a brother that is in sin. And what do you do? You go to that brother. One-on-one. You go to that brother. You go to that sister. And the whole point is to gain that brother back. Not to prove that you're right or they're right or they're wrong, whatever the case may be. You go to somebody. And then if that's not, that doesn't work, you get two or three others. And you go to them. Small. But you're going to these people face-to-face to look somebody in the eyes to say, I love you and I care about your soul. And I want to gain you back because I feel that you are in sin. That should, be, that should be the model for us. And I feel like that's what Paul is saying here is, listen, when I come in person, I'm going to say the same thing I've said before, and I have no problem saying it again. There's no double standard between my letters and what I say to you. Take a break right there. Any, any thoughts before we move on to the rest of the chapter? All right. We'll go on to this next little section, uh, verses 13 through 17. I, I, skipped, I skipped verse 12. Um, verse 12 really just kind of, uh, I tacked that on with the previous section. It talks about those that compare themselves uh, among themselves. And really, I think this, this just speaks back to that factious thinking that he really addressed in 1 Corinthians, where you had those individuals that said, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas. Individuals that, instead of, again, comparing themselves back to the true standard of the word, Compare themselves to others and say, well, you know, Apollos is a much better speaker than Paul. But I really want to be, I want to be in the Apollos group. They say, well, no, you know, Peter was the one that spoke on the day of Pentecost. I, I kind of want to be in the Peter group. He said, get that thinking out of here. That's worldly. That's fleshly thinking. That's flawed thinking. We are going back to the true standard. So now this next section, verses 13 through 17. He, he's really hitting home at, at a topic that he has talked about before. What is the proof of his authority? So he said in the previous section, yeah, you're right. I've got authority. I'm not going to apologize for it. I've got the authority that came from God because I'm an apostle. But what he's pointing out is how he used that authority. And now he really hits him here. He says, you know, you are the prime example of that. You are the proof of my authority. Look at verse 14. For we are not overextending ourselves. As though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. It's easy for me to imagine that some of these individuals that were detractors of Paul have been quite possibly taking credit for some of the work that he and Apollos had done. Coming in, again, taking advantage of Paul's absence to take credit for some of the things that he had done. Paul said, that's not us. We don't go around tooting our own horn, talking about all the things that we've done and trying to take credit for other men's work. He said, you know, again, I just get the impression he's coming to the Corinthians saying, listen, guys, just take a step back. Look at them and look at me and, and judge for yourself. You know the work that I did when I was with you. How long was Paul there? You guys remember? 
18 months. 18 months. He was there for a year and a half. You know, so this wasn't, he didn't come for a week or two and then, and then get out of town. He was there. He was there with them. He lived with them. He worked with them. He worshiped with them. Paul's saying, listen, you are the proof of my authority. My authority is not that I came in and I slapped my resume on the table. And I said, hey, I'm Paul. I'm an apostle. And here, here, here's all the things you can see. Here are all the things I did in all these other places that are going to tell you how great I am. He said, no. He said, you are my resume. You are my CV. I, I, need, I, need, no, I need no further proof of authority. And again, he, he's saying he has authority. He said, I need no greater proof of authority than you yourself, the work that we did. I, I didn't come in here boasting about all the things that I did in, in Macedonia or all the things that I did in Damascus or whatever the case may be. He said, I'm just talking about you guys, me and you. It's a very, very personal relationship. Chapter 11, he's going to highlight again the nature of that personal relationship. He feels like a father talking to his children. John? Talk about how you are the resume of our authority. Yeah. You are our letter written in the sky. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, very good. Yeah. He said, you are. You are the letter that has been written in our hearts. Um, yeah, he said something similar. I think I put up there 1 Corinthians. He, he said this to them before. We had already looked at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we read those verses. But that's, it, it made me think of very, very similar wording to what he said in chapter 3. Uh, chapter 9 and verse 2 of 1 Corinthians, if I am not an apostle to others, so take all that other stuff away. Take all that other stuff. If I am not an apostle to others, doubtless I am to you. You are the seal. You are the sign of authority of my apostleship in the Lord. Okay. And, and furthermore, what he then goes on to say is, okay, even if you want to think about the other things that have gone on, the other things that I have done outside of Corinth, that's all to the glory of God. The things that I have done in Corinth, the things that I have done outside of Corinth, he said, that is all to the glory of God. So verse 17, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Just a what I can imagine, a very, very different shift in tone from the individuals that are speaking out against Paul, that are trying to build themselves up, that are trying to puff themselves up, and trying to assume authority versus Paul, who has the true authority. Um, any, any final thoughts here uh, about chapter 10 before we move on into, into chapter 11? It's, it's a very smooth transition. The thought, the thought continues, but I just want us to kind of keep this all in the back of our minds as a, a master class for dealing with those that would deride us or challenge us or, or try to, uh, or, you know, really try to put us down. And I, I've already mentioned that verse, but just one application is in dealing with a sinning brother and just kind of removing ourselves, our pride from the situation. You know, it's not about me being right and you being wrong. It's about finding the truth. And I feel like that's, that's an issue in our, in our day and time. You know, in a lot of ways, we have lost the ability to disagree with one another. And I think we have lost sight of, I guess, the, the standard of truth. And so many times, if you just, you know, like when I pull up my computer screen at work, it's got this highlight of all the different days news stories. And, you know, it's always some version of, you know, oh, check out who owns so-and-so on Twitter. Or this politician clapped back at somebody else on the, I mean, it's just, it's one thing after another. You turn on the news, it's just two people that are arguing over each other. And it's, you know, who can, who can say more than this person or who can 
have 140 characters that sound smarter than this person. And I feel like we've lost the ability to disagree when we lose the ability to speak truth, to speak something that is objectively true, not me or you or one over another. Let's go to chapter 11, start looking at some of these verses here. As I mentioned from the very beginning of class, these are the stakes. This is what Paul is, is thinking about when he is writing these things. This is why it is so important for him to defend his authority and his apostleship. Uh, chapter 11 and verse 2, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Look at the way that Paul describes that relationship. He feels like the father of a bride. And he has this immense responsibility to keep his bride chaste, pure, clean, so that when he presents this bride to her husband, to her betrothed, it'll be nothing but rejoicing. There will be nothing but glory and honor. That's the, that's, that's the way he feels about them. He feels like this father that has this immense responsibility over them to keep them pure. And that's why he's so worried about these other individuals, because he sees the selfish intentions that these individuals have for trying to steal them away for pride or for monetary gain or just as tools of Satan. And he said, I can't let that happen. You are my children. I want to keep you pure. My daughter is quite small right now, but there's, there's, something, there's something different about the way you feel about a daughter versus a son. Um, you know, and, and I don't, I don't quite know fully how to explain that. But if, but if you've got a daughter, you feel differently about your daughter than you do your son. There, there's something, there's something in a father that I don't know if we can quite put into words, but you just feel different about that that way that you want to protect them, that way that you want to care for them. And, and I don't know if it's just that you know you expect you expect a son to grow up into a different role. And so you have different expectations, and it's not a, not a difference in love, but maybe just a, just a difference in the way you feel about your responsibility toward them. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. And, th- and those, of you that, those of you that have children, boys or girls, can identify with that, I'm sure. The way that a parent feels that responsibility for their children, to protect them, to care for them, to keep them from evil, so that they can remain pure and acceptable to God. Well, now let's get into... What I think are, are Paul really kind of honing in on four very specific charges that have been levied against him. Um, and so as, as Titus kind of brings word back, maybe these are some things that Titus has told him. Hey, listen, this is what people, this is what people are saying about you. you know, this is what you're going to need to clear up. Um, so let, let's look there. And, and these, are, these are things that, that I've identified. So this, this might not be comprehensive. Might be reading into it a little bit too much. But uh, if you look there in verse 5, for I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostle, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. So the first charge that I see is that somehow he is an inferior apostle. And Paul has at times described himself as the least of all apostles. So there is an element of humility there. But he is no less an apostle than anyone else, even though he was one that, as he described, was born out of due season. He was not one that was with the other 11 from the very beginning. 
He was one that, that came along later. But despite the circumstances of his apostleship, he is no less an apostle. And again, he points back and he says, listen, you know that. I was with you. Even though I may not have the same pedigree as some of these others, I'm not inferior. He said, I may not be the best speaker. I may be untrained in speech, but I'm not untrained in knowledge. That's the first charge that I see levied against him. Verses 7 through 10. Uh, and, and this, I think, is what lends itself maybe to uh, that, that second sophistic movement where you have these individuals that would essentially take pay to be a professional orator, where they would have a patron and they would have disciples and followers that would then pay them for their services. And you could see these individuals saying, well, listen, you know, Paul's not a professional. He doesn't even get paid for it. You know, what, what kind of apostle is that that doesn't even get paid for his work? Paul has in the past defended those that minister of the gospel and saying they are worthy of their wages. But he's going to point out to them, listen, there's a reason I didn't take any money from you, and it's because it was for your good. Uh, verse 7, did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? And this is what, this is what should really get to us. Verse 8, I robbed other churches taking wages from them to minister to you. Verse 9, when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. In everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. You know, he, he probably takes a little bit of literary license there. The Spirit does with that idea of being of robbing. Obviously, he didn't take from these other churches. But he said, listen, I, I accepted from other churches so that I wouldn't be a burden to you. And I can imagine these same individuals, if Paul had taken money from Corinth, they would have tried to use that against him that way. So, oh, listen, he was just there to get money from him. Paul's saying, listen, I didn't take money from you. I actually accepted money from others. So that for that 18-month period that I was with you, I did not want to be a financial burden on anyone. I wanted to focus solely on preaching the gospel, on edifying you, building you up, strengthening you. He says, so just because I didn't take any money from you, in some ways, he's, he's kind of turning the argument. He said, that actually makes me more valuable to you, is that you can clearly see I wasn't after your money. I wasn't after any kind of physical gain from you. I only cared about your spiritual good. Uh, verse 11, he said, why? Because I do not love you? God knows. Uh, you can imagine them, again, just twisting, just twisting Paul's actions and twisting Paul's words. You know, as you read throughout 1 Corinthians, uh, it's hard for me to imagine that somebody could twist that, but they could maybe say, look at all these, look at how harsh he is towards you. Paul, I don't know if Paul really loves you. I don't know if Paul really cares about you. And I love how he, do, he doesn't even go into any explanation. He's like, listen, man, it's ridiculous. God knows how much I love you. You know how much I love you. Just get that argument out of here. Sometimes, sometimes the simplest ones are the best ones. Like, I, like, you know, sometimes if you've got a kid that comes to you and they've got this crazy, you just want to be like, no, we're just not going to deal with that. It's not, sometimes I'll bear with you a little bit. I'll kind of answer some of your questions. No, not this time. That's what Paul's saying. Listen, that's ridiculous. I'm not, I'm not even going to go into that. You know how much I love you. I love you, as he's already described, like a father loves his children. This, this last one he does elaborate a little bit more on. It seems to me that not only are they trying to pull Paul down a little bit, but then they're trying to elevate themselves and say, listen, at least we are equal with Paul. You know, Paul, Paul is not everything he says he is. We are at least equal with him. And Paul says here, uh, and, and I love that he just comes right out. He's not afraid to call them what they are. He says, listen, these individuals are false apostles. Satan is, is hardly ever straightforward about his deception. 
he always couches things in, in little, little elements uh, of truth or light so that he can drag people down. And that's what Paul says here. He says these individuals, verse 13, are false apostles, deceitful workers. Um, I, we, we don't have a lot of time. I know we're running out. We're kind of hitting that last five minutes here. But I, I thought about John chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. When Christ talks about being the true shepherd, the true shepherd speaks, and the sheep hear his voice. You know, the, the, the false apostle, sheep don't hear his voice. The imposter, the imposter doesn't go through the gate. The imposter doesn't speak to the sheep the way the true shepherd does. The true shepherd goes in by the gate, speaks to the sheep, and the sheep hear his voice. And I see some elements there of what Paul is saying. Um, let, let's, let's try to move through. We've got just a little bit more. I don't know if we'll be able to just finish everything off. But this next section is a little bit different. You know, Paul has, has adhered to uh, maybe the loftier arguments. And, and now, now he's going to get in the mud a little bit. Um, and he's going to say, listen, if you want to talk about some of these things, we'll talk about some of these things. Um, so, so we've gone from, from Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump here. And, and, and we're, we're going to get in the mud a little bit. And we are gonna, we're going to talk on your terms. We're, we're going to talk the way that you're talking to me. And so verses 16 through verse 21, he's going to take the time to boast. And, and I think there's, there's a, a big element of irony here. Um, you know, because Paul has clearly admitted that he is not one to boast. He is one that is coming to them in humility and meekness. He says, listen, if you're going to lay these arguments out, I'll answer your arguments. You know, I'll, I will talk to you in the terms that you have talked to me. And in reality, all he is doing in my mind is just creating further separation between himself and those that would detract from him and those that would say false things against him. And he said, listen, I'll, I'll, I'll be glad to answer all of your charges. It's, it's hard to see any kind of specific charges that are maybe levied against him. But he's just going to say, listen, if you, if you have these people that are boasting and they're talking about all the different things that they've done, he said, let's talk about that a little bit. And that's what you see in, in really verses 22 down through the end of the chapter. And it just, it's hard to read these verses and not see somebody who just clearly, no shadow of a doubt, cares 100% about the cause of Christ. When you look at all the things that he outlines, that he has suffered. And again, he says, I, listen, he's like, I'm speaking as a fool. You know, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. You know, this is not this kind of stuff that we have to talk about. But I have to tell you guys the things that I've suffered and I've endured. But he's, he's working towards a point. And I think the greater point is, he said, the things that I'm really going to boast about are my weaknesses. I'm not going to come to you and tell you all the things that I'm great at. I'm not going to come to you and give you this resume of all the things that, that, I'm, that I'm awesome and I'm incredible at. He's like, I'm going to tell you about all the things that I've endured. Because where I have been weak, God has made me strong. I think that transitions to what we'll study two weeks from now in chapter 12. Where I have been weak, God has made me strong, and that's something to boast about. We're not going to fight. We're not going to war according to the flesh. We're going to war according to the spirit. And, and while in the flesh, Paul has, been, Paul has been damaged. I mean, you read through these verses. Uh, you know, just we'll take just a quick second. In labors more abundant, this is verse 23, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths often, in the dues five times I received 40 stripes minus one, three times beaten with rods, once stoned, three times shipwrecked, a night and a day in the deep, in journeys, in perils, in 
perils of robbers and perils of countrymen and perils of Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils in false brethren, weariness, toil, sleeplessness, hunger, thirst, fasting. And on top of all of that, I mean, this, this just really blows my mind. All of that, like if that's not enough. What comes upon me daily is my concern for the church. <laughs> the, the fact that he lists that up there with all of these physical things that he has endured should tell you everything you need to know about Paul. That what he considers the greatest burden is the care and concern that he has for all of these brethren. And he, and he even goes on. And he says there in verse 29, who is weak and I am not weak? You know, who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? And, 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 I, and you may read that a little bit differently, but, but I see that as, as in connection to that prior verse where it's talking about his concern for the churches. When he sees his brethren weak or stumbling, he feels that pain. When he sees somebody that is trying to lead them astray, he, he's burned up with indignation. That's how closely he is connected to these churches. That's how deeply he cares for these churches. And he finishes, and it may at first seem like just a, just a little bit random, but the last, the last three verses, he goes out of his way to specifically mention maybe the first time that he was persecuted. Shortly after his conversion, when he's in Damascus, and he's preaching the gospel, maybe for the first time, I'm not sure. But if you remember, the governor and the people of that city are seeking to capture him and kill him, and so he is let down by a basket. But I think this idea just highlights or illustrates what he's trying to say. That when things are out of my control, when I am weak, when I am lacking, God is with me. And that's what I will boast in. So again, just a night and day difference as we wrap our class up this morning. Just a night and day difference between those, again, that, that I classify as maybe prizing style over substance. And coming with lofty words, coming with great abilities, maybe coming with a big resume, maybe some letters behind their name to, to show off the school they went to. And there's Paul. No resume, except for the church. And just telling them, listen, it should be clear and obvious to you that I care about you, that everything I, that I've done has been for your benefit. I do have authority. He's saying, I do have authority. Authority has been given to me by God for you. All the things that I've endured for you, for the glory of God. What I'm going to boast about, when I've got a chance to boast, I'm going to boast about God. I'm not going to boast about myself and all the things I've done. So he didn't lay out all the churches he had founded, all the people he had baptized. You know, if you remember in 1 Corinthians, he says, I'm actually thankful that I baptized, what, none of you except for the house of, of Stephanus, maybe maybe another one that I'm missing there. He said, I didn't baptize a ton of people there. And, I, and I'm, I'm okay with that. You know, I don't, I don't, have, I don't have a little tally that I've got to keep all the people that I baptized, all the churches that I founded. Listen, there, there, there's, a, there's a night and day difference between Paul and these individuals. And that's what he's highlighting. Any, any final comments? Looks like the bell just rang. Any, anybody have anything they want to add before we close? Yeah, John?
All right, guys, gospel meeting next week, but uh, if you would, please go ahead and focus on chapter 12. So the week after the gospel meeting, we'll do chapter 12. Thank you very much.